Marhaba, and welcome to the Matrix Green Pill, where real people connect. Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Matrix Green Pill podcast. We are on our third podcast with PR veteran Jack Pierce, and with us is our evergreen co-host, Namita. Hi, Mel, and I wonder what Jack is going to pull out of the hat today. I'm sure he's going to have something really, really interesting for us, as he always does. So, Jack, in our past conversations, we spoke a bit about your background, how you got into the world of PR. Today, we're going to we would like to delve a little deeper into some of your experiences in PR. I know you have many, many stories for us, but today we've picked a couple that we would like to hear more about. Could you tell us a bit more about the Oasis Mall crisis campaign? Yes, this is the one that gave me the reputation of being the guru because it's described in the communications magazine that we used to have there, a perfectly managed crisis management episode, for which we also have to thank one of my employees at the time, Myrna, one of my first employees, Myrna, she was very, very good at that period. Crisis management. Why did I know more about crisis management than anybody else in the Middle East? Well, it's pure accidental. My client at the time was Shell, the oil company. It's a Dutch-British group, but the headquarters are in London. And I was at home having my summer holidays in England. For some reason, I was going to have a free morning in London before I needed to go out to Heathrow Airport to return to Dubai. So I thought, oh, what shall I do with myself? I know what, I'll just go and see the head of PR at Shell. So I phoned him up. I said, look, are you going to be around tomorrow morning? Could I come and see you at about nine o'clock? We communicated through email all the time. And I reported to him once a week through email. I'd never actually met him face to face. So I went along to Shell House, very significant building in London, went to see him. We introduced each other. We're just sitting down and having a nice little chat and a cup of tea, as the British do. And um, he had a phone call. He had a delivery coming. Was this okay? He was had a delivery of newly published books being delivered to him. So they brought in this great big box on a trolley with hundreds of books in it. It's a book produced by Shell on crisis management. Because I just happened to be there, it's only to be given out to their communications managers around the world. Because I happened to be there, he gave me one. And it was the most advanced and well-researched book on crisis management available at that time. That's what gave me the head start. So I studied that book time and time and time and time again and uh, used it a lot and did all my teaching notes on crisis management based on that book, the Bible, if you like, of crisis management. When the Oasis fire broke out, the first thing to do is let everybody know what's happening. Be open and honest with everybody. So I advised the client, the owners of the building, to advise all their internal clients, because there's a whole load of different shops inside there, to advise them all of what was happening by phone and to call them to a management meeting where the management would tell them all exactly what was going on. You must remember that in Dubai at that time, there had been a fire at a similar sort of premises years before, and it was discovered that it was an insurance jobby. They'd set the fire deliberately. Okay. So that's why it was a very dangerous area to be in, because everyone would assume automatically that this was another insurance jobby. We had to get their management to explain all the reasons why it wasn't an insurance jobby, because they were burning down their own head office. This mm. is the landmark group, you know them. They burnt down their own safe all their records, everything else. Nobody would do that deliberately. So that was placated them. We also, in, at the same time, invited all the press to a meeting 
with the same management committee a couple of hours later and went through the same routine. We, if you like, practiced on the um, tenants of the property, practiced on them, got to see the sort of questions that they were being bombarded with. So when the journalists came, the management team was better acquainted with how the meeting might go. It's like they could answer all the questions perfectly. And so that was the major part of it, the fact that when we announced it, of course, there was follow-up and questions after this and questions after that. And I believe the one thing that one of our clients might have fibbed about was the owner of a pet shop who said that none of the animals, there were only a couple of animals that died. I believe that that was a fib, but it's a very small part of the overall picture. That's the main story about the Oasis management. We managed to contain a crisis that was very public. And do you still have that book from Shell? I think I probably left it in the office to you guys. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to go dig up for that exactly, one. Exactly, yeah. So we can have some lessons Also, on. a follow-up on that would be that when I was working for BP, I used to train up all their managers every year, do a refresher course on what to do when a crisis happens. Mm-hmm. And then their the PR manager said to me, these people are all engineers. They don't understand lots of theories and all the intellectual things you talk about. What they understand is flowcharts. Could you convert the basics of how to manage a crisis into a flowchart so engineers wow. could understand it more easily? Now, that was a challenge. That took me quite a long time. But I did eventually come up to a nice little flowchart that showed you, one, you do this, two, you do that, three, you do this, four, you do that, five, when you write a press release about it, one, you must first show concern for life and limb, secondly, inconvenience to neighbours, Thirdly, thanking the authorities and that sort of thing. And then the inconvenience to staff. And only lastly, do you talk about the cost of how much it's cost you? That is always left to the last thing. So it's those sort of things and could work for an engineer. So that was something I was very proud of. So Jack, have you ever worked on advising Dubai government or tourism bodies on how to position themselves through PR? Well, not really. It was the Dubai Economic Department, mm-hmm. as it was called at that time. It's now, a, it's got a different name. And they asked me to come and see them. And they said, Jack, we want your advice. We've got the Dubai Shopping Festival that's been going for several years right. now. It's only a regional festival. We want to make it an international festival. So could you come back with some ideas for making this an international festival? Okay, I'll give it some thought. I'll go back and brainstorm with my team. And then I'll call you when I think we've got a proposal that would make sense for you. Mm -hmm. We'll arrange an appointment for presentation. So I went back with my team and we brainstormed and we brainstormed. Following day, we brainstormed and brainstormed again. And then we came up with it. I don't know how it came up. But somebody said, break Guinness World Records. We came up then and thought, okay, you, I appointed somebody, look up all the Guinness World Records and pick out the ones that you think we could most easily break. So we came up with a list, quite a long list. When we were ready, we phoned, if you remember this, at the time, putting it chronologically, it was just after the Burj Al Arab had won the award for being the world's only seven-star hotel. Mm -hmm. So it was just after that time. On that list, the other thing that had just happened at that time is just when Emirates taxis had been just mobilized, the company was just buying fleets of taxis. They just put in orders with um, Toyota and Nissan and whatever, mostly Toyota, to buy thousands, well over a thousand motor cars off them 
that were all going to have to go in and get painted up and have the meters put in them and everything else like that. The first one I said was, we could do the longest continuous line of taxis ever in the world. And they loved it. Yes, okay, we'll do that. And that was one of the ones that we did actually break with uh, 1,270 or taxis in one column. It started on Sheikh Zayed Road. All the taxis keep kept on feeding into Sheikh Zayed Road from the side roads. The guy from Guinness, one of them, the woman, was in a helicopter. They could witness there wasn't any break in the taxi thing and that it wasn't just a circle of taxis going around and around and around. The other guy from Guinness was with myself and Sheikh Mohammed opposite the British Embassy. That's where we counted all the cars coming past. So we broke five records on the same day. But the interesting thing as a follow-up from that, of all the ideas that we put up for them, we gave them a list of about, oh, 40-odd different things. Many of those Dubai has now done. The world's tallest flagpole is in Dubai. The world's biggest flag, either in Dubai or Abu Dhabi, I think, might be. So many of the world records that Dubai just keeps on breaking, it was all started as an idea from Matrix PR. Jack, you've, I mean, you know, moving on from these uh, world records, you've imparted a lot of knowledge to many. You've been a teacher. Would you like to share a funny story or an experience from your PR teaching days? Oh, okay. It's not funny. I used to do a presentation once a year to the um, Event Management Development College. I don't know if it's still around. They were based down in Dubai Media City. EDMI. Uh, Event Management Development Institute. That's yeah. right. That's yeah. the one. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, I did two for them. One was understanding how to manage PR specifically for events. So I used to do this every year. It was just a nice go up and put up a PowerPoint with just one slide on it. And all it was, was the main highlights of events that I'd been involved in the management of mm -hmm. throughout my career. I didn't need to have any notes or anything else. It was just my bio data in terms of events, event management. And I could just tell them the stories. People remember stories. If you tell them a story, people remember it. If you give them a list of 10 items that you've got to remember, people can't remember that. The following week, it's gone completely out of their head. But if you tell them a story, they say, oh, yeah, I remember a story. It has a beginning, a middle and an end. Yeah, OK, that makes sense. I just told them the story of my life as far as event management concerned. And the first event I really managed, which I had to manage the PR for, was just telling them about the powerboat races I used to organize when I had the water sports center. That was a major one. And then, oh, I don't know. And then, um, oh, here's an interesting one. The summit meeting of the GCC leaders in 1986 or whatever it was. When Abu Dhabi was hosting it, as I was the PR manager of the Abu Dhabi Intercontinental Hotel, I had to manage the event as it were. And there was a very special message I used to explain, because when we started, all the department heads got together about six months before the event was going to happen. And we we're all told to come up with a list of things that we needed to do to prepare for the event. And every week we came back at a department's head meetings, all of us shared the items we'd come up with. And in those days, we had a great big computer Computers were huge things in those days. They were basically just spreadsheets. And so they put in all the items. It was 2,600 items when we first put in the list. As we came back every meeting, we'd all be adding more on. We'd suddenly realize, oh, to do that, we'd also have to do this. 
stupid little things like ordering from France a special seal, a boss made in the shape of the Abu Dhabi falcon in order to be able to make chocolates like a medal of the Abu Dhabi falcon on it. There's a lot of work to do. And then it's carried on for six months. But right at the end, after the event was all blown over, the one thing we noticed is that that, that list had grown to 260,000 items. If we'd come up with a list of that length at the beginning, everyone would have gone, we can't possibly do all this. But my takeaway from that to the students was never worry that it's going to be too big. It's all little steps. A journey of a thousand miles is just lots of little steps. No one of them is more difficult than the last. Just keep on going. Yeah, great. So we have yet again come to the part of the podcast we call Jack's Rabbit Hole. And today's question is, what are the most important traits to look for when you are hiring a new employee? Ah, team spiritedness. So important, yeah. So important. When I retired, when I stopped being in Dubai, let's say, some of the staff asked me, could I write them something that explained my management style? Because to them, it didn't seem as though I was the boss. I never behaved bossily. Mm. So I thought, well, yeah, how did, why do I have that particular management style and I traced it back to when I was a schoolboy playing schoolboy rugby I was a very big enthusiast at rugby and when I got into the um, lower sixth form so in other words I was 17 years old I was told by the rugby coach that I was now going to be captain of the team and I said I can't be captain of the team some boys here are more than a year older than me how can I boss them around he said don't you worry you just play your game and they'll all follow suit. But I said, but I don't even say anything during a game. He said, yes, you do sometimes. And when you do say something, they all stop to listen because they knew that you, taciturn you, would only be talking if you'd seen an opportunity or a threat that they hadn't. They'll always stop and listen when you're talking. So I did. I just captained the team for the next two years and it was was fine. Yeah, they just did whatever I told them to do. But I didn't actually boss them. They knew what they had to do. They just needed me to pat them on the back and say, yeah, good job, well done. Or be there when they said, what should I do now? That's very good, Jack. I think we have imbibed uh, the same leadership style. It's continued at uh, Matrix, even after you've moved away from Dubai, I think the values and ethos have remained. And uh, with that, we come to the final segment of the podcast, Your Green Pill Moment. So Jack, what would your green pill advice be to your younger self? Very, very tough. Because I'm writing my memoirs now for my son. I've been thinking about this a lot. Would I change my life at all? There were a couple of things. One of the things was definitely wrong, was never having smoked. That was the most foolish thing I ever did. But apart from that, all the crazy, crazy things I did, uh, the crazy turns and forks and turns in my life, they've all taught me something different. And um, it's those diversity of experiences, whether in teaching or journalism or sport, or I wouldn't try and give myself that much advice anyway. Perhaps maybe you're just telling your younger self that keep experimenting and keep trying. Don't worry about failing because I think you've experimented with so much in your life, in your career in particular. I think that's what's made you such a big success. So maybe even I would advise my younger self the same thing. Don't be afraid to fail. Life is rich. I guess it's just don't be afraid. Find a way. Just think about it. Ah, okay. Here we go. One thing. Sleep on it. Don't make decisions too hastily and always sleep on it. Whenever I was right anything important, a press release, 
a proposal, whatever it was, I'd finish it and I wouldn't fax it off or email it off straight away. I'd leave it till the following day. Let's say it's a press release. Sleep on it, sleep overnight, pull it up in the morning, read it through one last time, make sure all the T's across, all the I's are dotted, all the punctuation is perfect, every comma, every apostrophe. Then you send it to the client for approval, but only then. Thank you for that, Jack. And with that, we come to the end of this episode and we'll be back with the next episode. So stay tuned. If you enjoy our conversations, please like and subscribe. See you next Wednesday.